coming again and um, we'll start out with a prayer and then we'll jump into our study for the day. <laughs> this is a picture. <laughs> yeah. But we're in Ephesians 2 still. We're going to do Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. And this is a really cool continuation of the study that we're doing. Um, so we'll just start out with some prayer and then we'll jump right in. So thank you, God, for who you are. And thank you for bringing these people around us. And we appreciate your word and we appreciate your blessings. And I just appreciate the fellowship of these believers who are around us. And we just ask that this time may be uh, glorifying to you, sweet incense to you, that we all learn a little bit more about you, become more intimately familiar with you as we learn to love you better um, as a result of the great love that you have for us. And we ask for our blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ephesians 2, 11 to 13. So we talked about the last few verses, the last one we did the, like we talked about the five solas, we did the... Um, how we're saved and how we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ um, for God's glory and that it's not of our works so that we can't boast. It's all his work. And we learned that God's, we're God's workmanship. That's one of the things we went over as being his workmanship or that word we used in Greek was his poema, right? So we're crafted specifically for the purpose of showing God's grace through Christ in our salvation. But there's a little bit more to that equation that needs to be looked at. Um, and it's really easy to make the hermeneutical connection um, that we're made to love God and we're made to love one another. We were made to show his power, grace, and glory. And then there's just a little bit more evidence that what we were made for specifically as it ends there in verse 10 that he says, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is pretty interesting because um, Vince actually talked to me about this like a couple of months ago. And I had one of those kind of aha moments. And I was like, I need to dig in on this a little bit more. So I'm glad that I talked to him about it. So if you go to Genesis 1, so go all the way to the beginning of the Bible, first book, Genesis 1, and go to 26 to 31. So Genesis 1... And then you go to 26 to 31. Of course, Genesis 1 is the creation account, right? So we are going to read a little bit about God making man and woman. So Genesis 1, start in verse 26. And we're going to learn about God making mankind. So remember the verse we just read. So God created us. And he creates us for good works that he prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them, right? So listen to this, if you will. Verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And Adam said, and excuse me, and he, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, 
over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food and to every beast in the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. So this is pretty interesting, right? So we just got done talking about God creating people for a purpose from the beginning. This is what he made them for, specific purpose. So when you look into that, it, it kind of makes you wonder like, well, why did God create us? He places mankind in the garden for a purpose. And that purpose was to have dominion over everything. But remember, God was there. So he builds us for, for fellowship. We are fellowshipping with the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfection with dominion over everything with the smorgasbord buffet of all the fruits and vegetables that you could possibly eat at peace with all the animals and everything was, as God would say, very good. The other part of it is he made them man and woman to exist as a man and as a woman in unity together perfectly, perfectly, like a marriage, right? So a man and a woman together perfectly. And that's really important. So God made us, he made us to live in that perfection. We were made to walk in him in peace, recognizing that creation. So if you can imagine being Adam and Eve, you are standing in the perfect. Like there's no potholes in the road. There's no bad days. Like everything was built perfectly. There's no trees rotting. There's no death. There's no animals that are gonna die. There's no pain, <laughs> no. That is perfect, right? But he made us male and female. We exist together in love and respect of one another. And one of the things was he was made to be fruitful. We are made to have children. That's why our parts are the way they are. And that's why a man and a woman come together to have kids, beautiful babies. We are made to exist as a family with the father and sons and daughters who create more sons and daughters to exist even more, perpetuate in perfection with God. We are made to have dominion over everything. And in verse 21, he tells us what God made was very good. Knowing that we're sinful and we live in a fallen world now, one of the greatest works that we can do is closest to perfection as we can get on this side of the cross, on this side of our death, is to love and respect each other as men and women in the covenant of marriage. To honor God and his intent for our lives the way that they were intended. And this work is beyond the simple idea of honor and it brings us back to a place of perfection, as, as I said. The world is twisting this on us as we speak. They are twisting the roles of a man and a woman into other things that they were not intended to be. A man is created for a purpose and a woman is created for a purpose. Now think about this way. As we read in the New Testament, we see things built a little differently, right? So we see a man having headship over a woman in the context of the church and in the family and in the home. Because God has built like this ranking system, not that a man is better than a woman, but he finds the position of headship because he is the lead servant, right? So as we see, as we get to Ephesians 5, that the man is the one who lays his wife down. So if you think of putting himself below his wife, for his wife, 
and then a woman submits to her husband. But in perfection, the way that, that's not the way God built it. That's what had to be a result of the fall because God had to make things orderly because we mess things up because we are horrible at just doing life. The way God made us was a man and a woman equal together, right? He took the woman from Adam. They are the same. So it shows a lot. When you think about like if your wife cuddles up next to you, that spot that she falls in, that's the spot she's taken from. They are together, uniquely built to be an intimate bond, and they are built for one another. Not one for the other, but for one another. You see, she is built from him so that she knows where she comes from exactly, but he is built for her because he is there as her man. God made it so incredibly perfect. And we screw this thing up because what the world will tell you today is there's no gender. You can pick it. It can be one of, I mean, there's not even a number anymore. College campuses are actually teaching in classrooms that you can make up whatever gender that you want and exist in it. It is absolutely antithetical to the way God teaches. You know, if you listen to some of the guys teach out there, what they say is like, God creates and Satan counterfeits. He tries to make things look like God, but not like God. I'm going to make my own way. When we on this side of heaven follow those lies about our sexuality and about our relationships between a man and a woman, it takes us down a road of sinfulness that is painful and hard to return from. And that just doesn't come from sexuality based on what you desire outside of the man and woman thing, but it it comes in our marriage as well. So a man and a woman exist to please one another. We are to submit to one another physically for a purpose because God built them to do that. It is us who screws that up, right? It's actually God who tells us, I gave you marriage because you were unable to just do the simple thing that I wanted you to do, which was to exist in a loving relationship and not have to screw it up. So we find this out that as we love a person, we exist to please one another perfectly. That means if you, if you really want to take it down to brass tacks, a man and a woman, as they are growing, should find a spouse and court that spouse and exist with that spouse forever. And I realize that doesn't always exist. That, I mean, the reality is we're, we live in a fallen world. But we always try to what we call reform, right? That's the good idea of the reformers is I'm always trying to get back to what God has that's best for me. That means we try to find a partner and love them and submit to them the best that we possibly can. My encouragement is that as we look at this, we are reminded that the world is trying to tear this institution apart and we need to stand against it, not angrily, but we need to remind people that if they are living in relationships other than the man and woman living together to please one another in the confines of marriage, that means sexually psychologically, emotionally, lovingly for the existence of procreating children who love God and honor God that we need to remind them of the sinful state that they're in and where they are going to go. There's only one way to heaven and that's to love God and accept his son. And when we say we love him, but then we decide to live another lifestyle, we're saying, I don't love you. 
And so we need to be very careful with that and very honest. Um, but as we transition into verse 11, we see here um, where we were before Christ came to us, right? So as we look, it says once in Christ. So um, let's read this real quick. So 11 through 13, we see, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So anytime we start something that says, therefore, like the old saying for the Bible is, if you read a therefore, you try to find out what the therefore is there for, right? I know it's funny to say, but it's true. So what is the therefore, therefore? In this case, it helps us to remember where we were before Christ. We need to remember because it gives us perspective on where we are in Christ compared to where we came from when we were without him. And Paul reminds the Gentile believers that there was no salvation for them. They were not Jews and did not have a circumcision. <clears throat> um, and then he reminds them that this circumcision was <laughs> the one of flesh and not of the spirit. We've talked about circumcision before. Paul goes over it when we did Galatians. Right, and it begs the question of whether or not Gentiles ever had a chance to be saved before Christ came. So remember, God walks with Israel for thousands of years. Like, what about all the people that are else out there? It's a good question. Atheists ask this question regularly. Like, what about people that don't know God? What about them? Do they all just go to hell? I mean, it's a, it's a good question. Like, what about those people on that island somewhere who've never heard of Christ? Do they just go to hell? That's a tough question to answer because nobody's probably going out there you know, flying over the helicopter, driving Bibles, dropping Bibles off. So since they were not part of Israel and the covenant was not through them, the covenant of Christ, was there any salvation before Christ? And the answer is yes. And this is how we find out. Paul doesn't go into it here because his message is for a specific reason. But he does tell us a little bit in Romans 1, 18 to 26. So if you will, if you have your Bible, go to Romans 1 and go to 18... We read Romans 1, 18 to 26. So a little bit of this part of Romans 1, Paul is going to tell the Romans, the Christians and the Jew, Jewish Romans, about God's wrath, and the wrath of unrighteousness. So Romans 1, starting in verse 18 and reading through 26, and it's a little bit long, but bear with me if you will. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So God revealed himself to everybody that existed at all time, from the beginning, and people decided to step away, right? In the things that have been made. So that means, this is the old saying, right? If you walk outside, you can see God. Why does a tree grow? God. Why does the grass grow? God. Why do the birds fly? God. Exactly. 
Why do the animals know where to migrate? God. God, exactly. They all do it because God. And it is good. For although, uh, excuse me, it says, so they are without excuse. Now that's a tough one. So what about those people who never heard of Jesus? Well, they have. They turned against him. There's no excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor, their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then this is going to go into, it actually goes into a, a, a thing about um, men and women being in sexual relationships that are not godly. That is exactly the next part of this. Women exchange natural relations with women. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and consumed with passions for one another. But the reality is we just talked about how God made man and woman for a purpose to exist together in dominion over the loving creation of God. And what Paul is saying here is I made it, God made it and you denied it. I made all this for you. And you're like, eh, I don't need that. I can do it my own way. And what God did is he gave them up. He said, go ahead, believe that way. You keep turning against me, go. Now we have Israel coming in. So God's plan from the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3. So as we move on from Romans, it says, Paul's making this case. There's absolutely no excuse not to believe in God. He revealed himself through Adam and Eve, through their lineage, right? Um, he revealed himself continuously through Abraham. We start before that, it goes right through Noah, Adam and Eve, and then uh, through Noah and the covenant that comes, uh, his power to destroy, his power to redeem. Through Abraham, he reveals the promise of Jesus. Through Israel, even in their wavering faithfulness, became an example to the world. See, creation was always an example, but men just choose not to follow God. You just choose not to. It's, this is like pretty simple, you know. When you sit in the room with a pagan during the day and they're like, I just don't believe it because there's not enough evidence. That's not true. You choose not to believe it and you're foolish. It is what it is. When you live a lifestyle outside of the way God wants you to live your lifestyle, it's not because you don't believe, it's because you're just a fool. That's it. So make the decision. It's where we need to be. And we lovingly tell people this. So we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Just like in the garden, right? We question God and follow the lies. It's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Truly, are you really going to die? If Satan's like, really, Eve, if you really eat that, are you going to die? And God gave us up to our sinfulness and he continued with his plan to bring Jesus, the redeemer at that time. So, and who they become is covered in verse 28 through 32, which as I told you, they give themselves up to sin. So Paul has made the case that mankind has been separated from Christ. That's what we read first. And they're hopeless. And Gentiles were not even aware of the covenant. And it was hopeless. Like if you can imagine these people, they didn't have a covenant. They're like, they're pagans. They run amok. They have nothing. And now Paul has come to them and he's like, there's a way for you to be saved now. There's a way to heaven. Jesus came. They're completely hopeless. They're sinful. They're separated. They have complete lack of faith, avert rejection of God. 
and given over to their sins. And it seems pretty scary, right? But if you think about it, that is what the world around us today kind of looks like. Like if you watch the news, if you look at college campuses, if you look at the government, as much as I hate watching the news, I don't anymore really. Like people are just doing everything that's against God. Everything is against God. Nothing is actually about loving your neighbor for the case of Christ. It's about loving self. You know, a political argument becomes more about winning. A relationship with another person comes more about self-satisfaction instead of serving that other person. Or it becomes more about sexuality than it becomes about serving them in love. You know, it becomes more about making money than it does about giving your time, talents, and love to other people to serve them properly. It becomes more about me than raising our kids in a loving home that bring them up with God around so that they get to the age where they start making decisions. They've got a platform. I don't know if you ever heard anybody say this, but it's like, I'll just, I'm going to just do what I do and let them figure it out on their own. No, no, I don't want my kids to figure it out on their own. That is the dumbest thing ever. I don't turn the burners on on the stove and not tell my kids they can burn themselves on it and then just hope they don't touch it. That's stupid. You know what I do? I teach my kids that if they walk over to the stove and the stove is on, they can burn themselves on it. It's dangerous. And likewise, in that way, I brought my kids up in a way to love the Lord Jesus Christ because at some point this life is finished. And if you love your children, you want them to go to heaven. Right? I mean, that, that's not, is that selfish to think that I want more for my kids and I don't want them to walk through the junk that I walked through? I want my kids to be as perfect as possible on this side of heaven, and then for God to accept them lovingly through his saving grace. That's what I want. I never, absolutely foolish. Absolutely scary. So, but God. So we get this but God thing that goes on again, right? So we see this thing um, when they were alienated. And in verse 13, what Paul says is, but now in Christ Jesus. Remember in Ephesians 2, in verse four, we did we covered that. But God, Paul talked about it. He discussed how we follow the course of the world and lived in passions of the flesh. And then he says in that verse, in verse four, but God being rich in mercy and His great love for us. And here Paul is saying, but now in Jesus Christ. See, every time we see our transgression or our sinful state or our backslidden nature, it's always God who comes to save. It's always but God. I was living a sinful lifestyle, but God. I felt hopeless, but God. I was doing too many drugs and drinking too much booze and treating people poorly, but God. I didn't know where I was going to go when I died, but God stepped in and showed me where I could be if I was obedient to him and I loved him and his saving grace come and touched me. And now I know where I'm going. Paul tells us specifically we were far off and he brought us near. But we are not brought near by our own power, our own faith, our own works or luck. We were brought near to the Father by the blood of Christ. Remember when John the baptizer saw Jesus coming towards him? He's like baptizing people in the River Jordan and Jesus comes down to him. And people are like, who is this guy, right? He said, behold. So he like stops this word, behold. Behold, everybody stops and looks at him like, behold what? And he looks at Jesus and he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. People would have been like, what does that mean? 
the implication for the Jews that he was baptizing would have been the lamb, right? Remember, in the Jewish sacrificial system, the spotless lamb was the sacrifice at the altar for your sins. The lamb atoned for your sins. So people would have been like, what do you mean that guy's the lamb? What he was telling us was, you see that guy? That's the one who's going to spill his blood so that you can live. He's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. It's important to put in perspective on the cost of our sinfulness. I think it's really important. I, Carol and I talk about this regularly. I say it out loud because I can't figure out a way that I can listen to more pastors, preachers, and teachers yell at people. I know people don't like to be yelled at in church anymore, but like at one point for three minutes, everybody should like hear this over and over. We're saved from sin. Your sin is definitely wiped away. Your sin is blotted out. You're made righteous in him. But we set aside the tough part of the creation, right? As the perfect lamb in the sacrifice, Christ was slain. He was killed for us. He was murdered for us. He's what they call the propitiation. It's not an act. It's a thing. He becomes the sacrifice. He becomes the lamb. He's the payment. He bore upon himself all of God's hate. People are like, God is love. No, God is just. Yes, God is love. But God is just. God hates sin so much because it's against a perfect king that the payment in res is a result of that is death. You deserve to die. And he doesn't pour that out on us as believers. Instead, he pours it out on his son. This idea of like, I poured out my wrath on my son isn't just three nails, a jab in the side and three days in the grave. It is him bearing the burden of everything, every sinner that ever lived, ever that is in Jesus being set upon his head. It is overwhelming to understand that even everything that I've done that's wrong, somebody else paying for. Now everything I've done wrong and you've 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 done wrong. We take all that and some guy comes in and goes, don't worry. I am going to let the father crush me to death under all of your sin so that you can live. And we set that aside in the church because we're like, God loved you. He wiped your sin away. No, he didn't just wipe your sin away. He killed his son. I don't know about you. We all have kids in this room. But if somebody came to me for her and said, if you give her up to be crushed, I'll save all those people on the other side of the neighborhood. I'd be like, no, no, not happening. I'd rather just kill all of you. That seems very simple to me. Gunfight begin. Because I'm not God. Now, I can't get my head around that. And we minimize the payment that's made. But when we do recognize that horrible yet amazing sacrifice, right? We minimize the idea of how it's done specifically for us when we don't recognize it. We shouldn't just be telling people that we're Christians. We need to be overt about our understanding that this event draws us close to him. I want to look at one last verse. I know I've got you guys jumping around, but 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 through 5. My fat thumbs are having a hard time here. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 through 5 says this, And I, 
when I came to you, brothers, so this is Paul <coughs> talking to the people in Corinth, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Paul didn't come with a testimony. And I think this is interesting because the modern church is this really big thing about like, let's hear your testimony. Like, I really want to hear how you were saved. I want to hear about you. And look, in itself, having a, a, a good organized testimony, you can tell people about how you're saved, is, I think it's good. But that's never the lead in. And we've forgotten that in the modern church because people want to hear what the testimony is. And it's like, hold on a second. First, let's hear about God. This is not about Jeff Stevens' testimony. In the grand scheme of the world, my testimony doesn't matter. You know what matters? Jesus matters. That's it. It's always been about Jesus. It's still about him, and it'll be about him at the end. And it's not about me. So him first. Not that they're a bad thing, and they can be powerful, and they help us be relational with people. But let's start with Jesus. See, our faith should never rest in our own simple experience. It should not rest in our understanding. Our faith rests in the power of God and God alone. The power of God to create, to love, to present a perfect sacrifice, what he was willing to do for you and for me. He executed his own beloved son so that I, a sinner who was lost, could be drawn close to him. He executed his own son, his own beloved son, so that I, a sinner who was lost, could be drawn close to him for his glory. Father, we thank you for who you are, and I just thank you for bringing these sweet folks around me today. Love them, and uh, I just pray that um, as we part ways today after we sing uh, to you, God, that uh, you would send us out into the world, and our testimony be this, God, where do you find your hope? I find it in Jesus Christ, because he died for my sins. He gave himself up so that when I die, I can go and live in paradise with him. Not so that I can have money, not so that I can have a nice car or a nice house, not so that I won't be sick or deal with tribulations or troubles, not so that my marriage will be perfect, not so that things will be fixed here. He died for me so that things will be fixed in eternity. We want you to help us recognize that, Lord, so that we can be a great example to our friends, our neighbors, and our family, so that they will be drawn close to you as well, Lord. There is hope. There is hope in you, Lord, and, and we just need your help telling people. This world is coming unglued, and we just need to reach our neighbors, Father. I want to pray specifically for family members who are not here today, wherever they may be, not feeling good, traveling, working, um, that you care for them dearly, Lord. And ask that you continue to bless uh, Wednesday night as we come together and recover these verses. 
And I thank you for these last number of months, Lord, where we've come together here in our home and we've been able to praise your name through song, worship you through lessons from the Bible, and just ask that you continually rich us, uh, bless us all richly. And we ask for all of our blessings. In Jesus Christ, holy name, amen.